Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And every time I have Dr. Andy Scuddinga on, I always gear my psychology questions almost in a different way. If I have a counselor on, I ask counseling (laughs) questions. But when I have Andy on, I grill him in a much different way. And he's a professor of psychology at um, North Central University here in the Twin Cities. And I just always enjoy having you on, Andy. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having yeah, me. Of course. I always look forward to it. You know, I sent you a list of about six questions I wanted to yeah. discuss today. Some of them, I don't know what you think of them, but I want to try to get through most of them. Well, like I tell my students, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, that's true. That's true. So let me uh, l- open my list here. And my first question I want to ask you is, why do we change our decisions? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's funny because I just gave a test on Friday. Yeah. And I told the students, unless you're absolutely sure about your new answer, don't change your mind. (laughs) Because usually your first inclination on an exam is probably the right one. Mm -hmm. Because you've studied, you've prepared. And I think that can translate to life too. I think we often second guess ourselves because we're feeling maybe insecure or unprepared or we feel like, ah, you, you know, we doubt ourselves, right? And that doubt can creep into so many different areas. And one of them is we question our decisions as soon as we finish them. Yeah. And I think it, it's just based on our own either lack of preparedness or maybe just a little bit of lack of security in our decision-making abilities. Well, how often do you make a decision and then change it and then go, uh-oh, I should have stuck with the original one? I mean, um, I, would, I would assume it happens as often as you, you change test answers. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like every day when I change lanes on the way to work, <laughs> I say, yeah. why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> I should have stuck with, but that's actually indicative of how we make decisions, right? We, we think I need a short-term benefit to this problem. Let's say you have a problem, right? Like changing lanes. You think the right lane's going to be better. They're moving faster and you move without considering all the, all the possibilities. Yeah. And then you realize you've made a bad mistake and you might be like, ah, frustrated or why Mm -hmm. did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. But how many times when we make decisions are we second guessing because we didn't have all the information or because we chose not to take the time to consider all the options and we made kind of an impulsive choice? Mm -hmm. I I do this at the grocery store where you try to pick which of the two lines you think is going to be the (laughs) fastest and then you get in a line but you're not done watching the other line. Right. Going, did I make the right yeah, choice? I know exactly I, what you I, mean. Do I have time to jump ship here? Yeah. Should I do it? At the grocery store that I shop at, I know on Saturday afternoons, I know the cashiers. <laughs> and I choose my lane based on that. Okay. Because, because you know the speed of them. I Yes. There's one particular young man who is quite glacial in his grocery <laughs> scanning <laughs> pace. So I skip his line now. Mm-hmm. So changing decisions, uh, I, I w- wanted to ask you about why we do it, and are we uh, not prepared? Do we come out with a decision before we should, um, or do we do we make the decision and then just feel a little insecure about it? I think it probably depends. You know, if it's like a relationship decision, it it might be something that we decided 
very impulsively because we were reacting to an emotional sure. response. You know, we make a lot of decisions. You know, when you really get into the science of decision making, a, a lot of times people's mistakes are based on impulsivity and emotional reactivity. Mm-hmm. And if we're cautious about understanding how we react to certain things, um, it could be instructive for individuals to think about what are the things that I tend to make bad decisions about. Um, maybe if if I make consistently poor work decisions, for example, or time management decisions, what am I am I thinking hard about these, or am I just reacting? And if I'm always reacting, then I need to think about how do I become more proactive in thinking about my reactions to things. Mm-hmm. And that can I think that can be a really helpful tool for people to to think about who do struggle with decision making or with decision questioning okay a lot all right dr andy scuttinga is my guest he's a psychology professor at north central university here in the twin cities so let me move on to my next question uh andy uh why do we smile and why do we get angry (laughs) well that we could spend a week talking about why do we get angry right (laughs) yeah um why do we smile because it's a physiological response to joy or happiness or um, schadenfreude, right? Laughing at other Ooh, people's pain. German words. Yes. I know. I was hoping to throw that one on the radio someday, and I finally did. Yeah. So I'm very excited about this. We we smile because it's it's a communication tool, right? It's a device. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, furrowing your brows or opening your mouth wide, you know, for surprise. It's It's a message that you're sending to other people around you. You're saying a few different things with a smile. You could be smirking. Right, because not all smiles are positive. Well, and smile takes energy. You've got to use a lot of muscles to smile. Yes, versus remaining uh, neutral. Yeah, and even frowning, I think, requires a fair amount of muscles, but not as many as smile. Do I have that right? Do you know? Yeah, I think so. Smiling yeah. takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, but having said that, it is a, a perfect um, welcome mat to connect with people. Totally. And the minute you see someone smiling, you think, "Oh, friendly person." Yeah, and absolutely. As ambassadors of Christ, shouldn't we be showing that to as many people as, as we can? Absolutely. All right, I rest my case. No, it's it's hard to walk around with a smile on your face all the time. I think that would be unnatural. You know, if you're like 100% smile, people will think that's a little creepy mm-hmm. and strange. But, you know, how how many people's days have been brightened by someone who just looked at them and just gave them a little smile? That's a great point. Or even a big smile, like, mm-hmm. hey, how you doing, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, I to, just today, I was I got out of my car, and it was raining and, uh, you know, semi, it was pretty icy, actually, where I work. Um, the sidewalks were still kind of frozen, and a guy kind of slipped, and we made eye contact, and I just kind of smiled, and I'm like, I feel you, brother. And he <laughs> smiled back yeah. and, and shook his head, like, why do we live here in this weather? And we had a moment, not a deep moment, we didn't have right. a moment, but, you know, I, who knows what he was dealing with for the rest of his morning. Maybe he was going to a job that he hates, or maybe he just got off work from a job that he would like to change from, and running into a stranger and just having that smiley moment was a bright spot. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And why do we get angry? What, what, what do we get angry about? What? Oh, man. How do we get to this point where we're angry? Because we might see injustice. Okay, that's one. Unfairness, which is maybe the same as unjustness, okay. right? We see something that we have righteous anger, right? We we hear True. about something on the news and we're just angry about it. I get that. Why did somebody's house burn down? Why was there another shooting or another stabbing? We're angry about that. But I think sometimes we get angry because we're afraid. 
Yeah. Talk about it on a personal level, though. I mean, you feel like someone's not respecting you or yeah. you're not getting the service that you think you should be getting or whatever. And all of a sudden you find yourself angry. And yeah. I thought, boy, what a what a horrible emotion that I myself suffer from. I was mad yeah. over the weekend about something. I was really mad. Yeah. As mad as I've been in a while. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. And anger is one of those emotions that's it's tough to control um, even if you're very good at controlling your emotions, sometimes anger just, it flares up for people, even when they don't expect it. I'm not a particularly angry person by attitude most of the time, but mm-hmm. there are certain things that I can get remarkably mad about, and it's often kind of foolishness. I mean, I, I've i said this on the show before. Sometimes I get really mad at people in traffic as if I know what they're thinking or what they're doing, or what's going on in their life. All I'm consumed with is you're driving 52 in the left lane and everybody's going 70. Can you get out of the way? (laughs) Right? That that makes me mad because I feel like they're being inconsiderate. And then you pass them and you realize they're totally lost Mm -hmm. or they're a very inexperienced driver. Or they might be, you know, chatting on their phone and not caring about anybody. Regardless, do I really need to get mad about this? A A text just came in that we often get angry because expectations are not met. Oh, yeah. Totally. I expect everybody to be as good of a driver as I am. Boy. And when they're not... We got problems in scudding a city. We got got problems, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big one. That's that's another great example. Our our expectations aren't met. Mm -hmm. We've we've been disappointed. So instead of being understanding, we get get angry. When our favorite team has a call go against them, we get mad. I know, but why angry? Because something's been taken from me. Oh, right. Something's been stolen from me. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think that's what it is. In, in many cases, it's, it's injustice to me, and therefore, I'm upset. But we know it happens physiologically when we get angry. Blood yeah. pressure goes up. Yep. Uh, pulse starts to heighten, and yep. all of a sudden, you're not going to make the best decisions. No. You're not going to say the smartest things. No, generally not. Yeah. We, so what constructive is happening in terms of relational when, when, we, when we have taken that anger and, and let it fester? Uh, I not I a lot. I used the word fester on the radio. Yeah, festering time. is a great word. It's not a bad word. I don't mind the word fester. No, no. I think it's a fantastic word. You, you, what was the word you used? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, yeah, and I use fester. So we're off to a good start. Let's yeah. take a break now and then try to regroup and figure out <laughs> if we're on the right Welcome track. Welcome to Vocabulary Hour yes, with Bill right, Reynolds, right. Dr. Andy Scuddinga is my guest right here with me in studio. He's a professor of psychology. So I always target my questions a little different towards him because he's a kind of the academic guy, not the not the in-counselor kind of therapist. And I So I like asking the the more technical, heady ones. So if you've got a question for him, send it over, 877-933-2484. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand, no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. All right, I'm back with Dr. Andy Scuddinger. 
Don't ask me to spell his last name. It's tough. Do you want to try it? S-C-H-U-T-T-I-N-G-A. Yeah. That, that name gets butchered a lot. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Scootinga. Yeah. You've heard that one, haven't you? Oh, Scootinga, Shootinga, 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 Scootinga, Scootinga. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. mind Arnold that much anymore. No, Arnold's yeah. pretty easy. It is kind of easy. You can't really butcher that one. No. All right. A right. uh, great line came in from a listener. This has to do with the conversation that you just ended about being angry out of... Seven billion people in the world. I find it amazing that I can be the best driver, and that is the way we think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you know you're good, you're good, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Andy, I got some more questions here for you. Um, here's one. What motivates employees to be productive? Well, I fascinating you ask me this, Bill, since I actually wrote a dissertation about Did this. Did you really? Yeah, for real. I should vet my guests more. Yeah, I did a not whole, know you wrote a dissertation on this. Two hundred eighty pages, baby. Okay. Yeah, it was it was very exciting. Remember, we just um, have forty minutes left, so I don't. Have oh yeah, I'll I'll I can eighty um, pages worth. I can nutshell this real easily. Okay, good. So there's a motivational theory called. Um, I'm I'm totally blanking. I can't believe I'm doing this on the radio. <laughs> it's well, I'll tell you the name of it pretty soon. This is incredibly terrible. That's okay. I'm drawing a complete blank. Anyway, there's three components to it. Yep. Competency. Yep. Relatedness. And, well, I'll start with competency. So first, you employees want the ability to be good at their job. Of course. And they want to be able to learn new things, learn new skills, and develop themselves. That's one component. The second part is autonomy, which is you give your employees a little bit of freedom to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that's that's always dependent on what kind of work you do, but allowing people to choose how they spend their workday and have some choice in what they do is really important. And then the third part is relatedness. It's called self-determination theory, by the way. Um, relatedness is allow them to have good relationships in the workplace. They don't have to be best friends, but give people space and time to get to know each other mm -hmm. and support and care for one another. And... What a lot of research has found is this is applicable in multiple different areas, and it's also applicable in multiple different countries. So it's a multicultural type of theory that, that works in Indonesia, where I used to live, where I did my study. It works in Europe. It works in Africa. It works in North America. It works all over the world. And it's, it's a very simple concept. Just give people some freedom, some responsibility for getting better at what they do and, mm -hmm. a, and a chance to have meaningful relationships at work. And when you do that, people absolutely respond with better performance, with greater loyalty toward your, toward your company, and they report being happier at work. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it really, but those are the basic, according to the creators of the theory, those are the basic psychological needs that all people have in every situation. We want to be friends mm -hmm. with people. We want to have some freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. and we want to get better at what we do. People are driven to improve themselves in a lot of ways, and I think that ties in well with you know having purpose in life and having goals in your life and having something to strive for every day. Mm -hmm. Meaninglessness and purposelessness is a huge detriment, and it's a real problem for young men in society today, for example. Hmm. I went to a, a conference, a Christian conference, and one of the speakers was one of the bigwigs at the Ritz-Carlton that beautiful five-star hotel chain. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of empowering and motivating employees, every employee, doesn't matter what position you have, you have 
freedom up to $2,000 to solve any problem for any client. Really? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So you make decisions right on the spot. Yeah, like someone says, I don't, something's wrong with my shower. Boom. You can fix it. You don't have to approve you it. You don't have to wait for any approval. You've got the ability really to, cool. to take action and solve any problem up to $2,000. I thought that was a fascinating because everyone felt empowered. Everyone oh, I felt guarantee like, it. I will take care of this for you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, most people in the workplace are, they're adults who have some sense of agency. And right. I've I've never met anybody who truly doesn't appreciate being asked their opinion for things once in a while. I mean, even the most reticent people to give their opinions appreciate being asked, what do you think about this? Or how do you feel about this? And those are great questions that employers can ask their employees. What do you think about this? I have an idea for a company. What do you think about it? It's going to affect you. That's huge for employees to be asked that. Mm -hmm. Hey, we have budget problems. What are some ways you think we can cut back to help our bottom line? I don't want to have to fire anybody. I don't want to downsize human capital. What do you think we should get rid of? That's a that's a big way for employees to have buy-in and care about their company. And then when you say, hey, we've tried every avenue and we've tried a lot of your options. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have to cut salary because we, we don't want to fire anybody, but everyone's going to take a small pay cut to keep everyone here. You're going to have a lot more buy-in for that when you've asked people for solutions oh, and help point. than when you're just like, hey... Bad luck. Sorry. Tough year. Bob's got to go. Yeah. You always pick on Bob. Yeah. Sorry, Bob. That's There's all right. probably a Bob out there listening who's like, why me? I'm, so- <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. For sure. Dr. Andy Scuttinga is my guest. We are just uh, uh, chatting today about things that work or don't work psychologically in our head. Um, so one of the questions I had for you is... Um, how do we acquire our basic reactions? <laughs> That's a great question. I teach lifespan development, you know, developmental psychology. Okay. And it's a, it's a combination of two, it's a combination of nature and nurture, I'm, right? That's it's, one of my questions too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of the first things that like, particularly babies and infants, when they, when they see, it's not a learned reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, if you show them a, a googly eyed stuffed animal, some kids are going to want hug that thing immediately. And some of them are going to be terrified. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with anything they've seen before because they haven't. That's just, it's purely a genetic thing. Wow. I'm guessing their ancestors were always afraid of googly eyed creatures. <laughs> it's probably uh-huh. been passed on from generation to generation. Right. But then there's things like, what do you do when somebody is being naughty in your house? You hit them. What? You know, you know, spank a kid. Sure. You hit a child. You smack their hand. They talk back. You smack them across the mouth. What do you think they're going to learn from that? They're going to learn that physical responses to anger and unhappiness is the right way to go. Yeah, you're not endorsing that behavior, by the way. No, no. I'm not. No, I'm no. Just we saying, talked I'm about just, this once before. I'm just I'm, making sure yeah. we clarify. Yeah, I mean, that's, but that's a learned reaction. Or if your kids do something naughty to each other and your reaction is to yell at them at the top of your lungs, um, and sometimes that's necessary because your kids are fighting so loud, you might have to yell. Okay, that's, yeah. right? that's different. But it, it's, it's a combination of what have you learned from people around you, yeah. from your exemplars, from your parents, your caregivers, teachers? What, what do you learn about how to handle other people? But, you know... What is just your human nature? Some people are just really easygoing. And you can yell at them, you can punish them, and they're just like, hey, whatever, I'm okay. And they're going to be like that their whole life. Mm -hmm. Some people are extremely reactive, 
to even the littlest things, they're probably going to be that way their whole life. And you learn how to manage that stuff over time. But I'm not a proponent that your personality changes. I think your personality is the same your whole life. And I think it's genetically endowed. Mm. I think we learn how to manage aspects of our personality to fit not only the context that we're in, but kind of the world around us. Do you think, Andy, there's a a happiness default line that you're only going to be a certain level of happiness throughout most of your life? You might bump up a little bit or sink down a little bit low, but you'll, oh. you'll always find kind of your set point of of being happy. Because I, I know That's people an interesting that, question. I know a lot of people that just can't seem to generate a lot of joy and happiness. Yeah. And there might be a season of good news that comes in and they might bump a little bit, but then they find their way back to their, their sort of their default position. That's a, that's a fascinating question. And I, I don't know a research-based answer for that, but my gut instinct is that, yeah, I think we all have a different baseline for yeah, baseline, what our happiness what level for. is. Not default, but baseline. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally tend to be a pretty happy person. I know you are. For... That's why I think one part. of the reasons I was drawn to you. You were like a this outgoing, happy, kind of engaging person, and I struck up a conversation with you. Thanks. And we sort of hit it off, didn't we? Yeah, that was yeah. funny. And then you're like, hey, do you want to be in my show? I'm like, you have a show? What kind of a show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll be on any show. Yeah. Uh, that was you my. Were, you were so desperate. I was. I'm not going to lie. When somebody <laughs> yeah. says, you want to be in my show, I'm the type of human who says, you bet. Yeah. You could have said, I'm going to dump slime on your head and it kids didn't laugh. It I probably, matter. well, I probably would have done that, but I would have considered it. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've got a break <laughs> coming up here in a minute or two. If you have a question uh, that you'd like to ask Dr. Andy Scudinga, uh, let, us, let me know what it is. You can text it over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877 Two four eight four. I've got kind of a smorgasbord of questions for Andy, which I've enjoyed asking him. And we have got so much going on at Faith Radio uh, this month. And if you have not signed up for reading the Bible together, please do that because we are already underway and it's a great program. I think many, many, many people have signed up and you can sort of step away from all the distractions and read the Bible together with us. And you can connect with God through his word and you can uh, sign up uh, free right now at myfaithradio.com. And we've got the Set Apart Women's Conference coming up as well. If you've made a decision or are still thinking about it, you can register at setapartconference.com. That's uh, coming up this weekend. So we will take a, a break and be right back with Dr. Andy Scudinga. Let's get it started. 
jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. So glad to have Dr. Andy Scuddinga in studio with me because I enjoy him. He's a friend and he is a psychology professor. So he teaches uh, psychology at North Central University, which is right here in the Twin Cities. Because you wouldn't fly in to come be on my show, would you? Well, I mean, you might. I probably would, actually. Hmm. I mean, you'd have I'm to learning. pay for it. I probably I'm not, wouldn't. I'm not, I'm not paying okay, for it. Okay, then we'll just do it. You know, if I move away someday, we'll. I'll call you. Okay. I mean, on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Or something else. Some sort of technology thing would be useful. So I came across, I want to get back to our topic at hand, but in the meantime, I came across an interesting quote over the weekend, which I would like to share. The author, Boris Pasternak, who wrote Dr. Zhivago. Oh, yeah, okay. Russian guy. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was fascinating. He said, when a great moment knocks on the door of your life, it is often no louder than the beating of your heart, and it is very easy to miss it. Oh, that's pretty cool. I kind of thought so too. I think that's I think that's totally true. How many I mean, how many listeners out there have had a passing conversation with someone and then they met them a year later or two years later and they said, Oh yeah, I remember talking to you. Hey, by the way, we're looking for somebody <laughs> mm-hmm. who you know, and you're that person, right? Or you go to um you know, you go to perform at some Christian grade school fundraiser and you run into some guy who talks your ear off and you say, come be on my show. Right. Ding, ding. Right. So it's those, oh man, I think back at my own life and how many times my wife and I have had a small conversation with someone or about something that turned into something pretty major in our lives. That's, it's a lot of things for sure. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. I like that quote. All right, um, let's see here. Another question for Andy Scuddinga. Let's see. Uh, the impact of nature versus nurture on personality development. Well, the scientists say it's about 60-40 in favor of nature. Nature. Yep. I was going to guess that as well. Yep. It's who you are made to be more than who you are taught to be. And the behaviorists of the, you know, 50s and 60s were very bullish on the idea that you could take any baby from birth and train it into anything you wanted it to be. Um, And that emotions and and thought were kind of irrelevant. We know that that's not true. We know that how you are constructed in the womb has a significant impact on who you are each and every day. And yes, of course, there's lots of seminal life moments that shape who we are, you know, trauma, trauma or surprise or happiness or major events happening in your life that when you're little shape you for the rest of your lives. That's absolutely true. Um, but when you think about things like your, your intelligence level, your processing ability, um, you know, your, your person, your basic personality, your temperament, all that stuff is, is endowed at birth. And, um, David Myers, who writes a lot of psychology textbooks that I've used in the past says nature, um, sorry, Nurture assists what nature endows or enhances. You know, you can you can put it a few different ways. Um, so parenting is incredibly important, but it's not going to change a child's core personality. Mm-hmm. I think that's the probably the most concise way to answer that question. That's a good answer. You know, the question from a listener, what causes someone to be an optimist almost all the time and a different person a pessimist 
almost all the time. I think that goes back to their basic nature as people. I, I really believe that. I, I think you can – so here's what I would say about that. I think optimists can definitely be too optimistic, mm-hmm. right? I, I tend to be pretty optimistic about things. I'm, I would definitely put myself in the category of a natural optimist. Um, and I have to be reminded sometimes that optimism is sometimes fool's gold because you don't see the full reality of a situation because I'm so optimistic. It'll turn out great, right? Well, are you being transparent? Are you being vulnerable? Yes. If you're always optimistic, how do I get into that – that veneer. That's an excellent question. Okay. And I think you sometimes can't because someone is so optimistic that they're like, oh, nothing could possibly be going wrong here. And yeah, you can live in denial of reality because reality sometimes is pretty difficult. On the other hand, pessimists sometimes can, they can learn how to be, they can learn how to choose to have a more optimistic outlook. Just like optimists can learn how to be a little bit more skeptical of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, 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 what you go to first, your natural inclination, uh, inclination, I don't think that really changes much over time. Even as you get older, we do mellow from both extremes. But I think if you are a pretty pessimistic person and you want to be more optimistic, you have to make that kind of a mindset to say, look, I've, I initially feel pessimistic about this, but I realize that about myself. So I'm going to try to look at it with a different lens. And the same is true for optimists. Hey, you can't look at every situation like, oh, it's going to turn out great. Well, it it may not. Let's put some more realistic glasses on and look at the situation through those. And I think we can, you know, you can get more toward the middle and be more balanced Mm -hmm. if you put the thought into it and kind of practice it. And then if you're outside of God's family and you're enslaved in sin, it's probably a little easier to be pessimistic. Maybe not, but maybe so. Yeah, you you wonder. I've met some pretty pessimistic Christians. I have too. Who are just like, well, everything's of the devil. You know, and you're like, yeah. well, come on, no, it doesn't have to be quite that way. Or everything's bad, right? Everything is tainted by sin. Well, yes, it is, of course. But there's a lot of good things in the world, too. And we probably don't have to be so pessimistic about how bad the world is. Mm-hmm. All right, Andy, here's another question. If personality is constant, then why is encouragement and tremendous effort focused on changing our thought patterns? The process is tremendously slow mm-hmm. and rarely permanent. Oftentimes, the person feels like a bigger failure since it's so difficult to achieve that. It is pretty tough. Yeah. And it depends on how ingrained something is into your personality and how how deeply it is part of who you are. I mean, I, I would look at it as a continuum. Like if you are, okay, so let's stick with pessimism and optimism. And let's say, a, a you know, dead up middle is a zero. Okay. And let's look at it from the pessimistic side. If you're... You know, if you're like a negative two, negative three on the pessimism scale, it's probably a little bit easier to change some of your thought patterns about that mm-hmm. and recognize that about yourself and then change your thinking. If you're at like a negative 22, that's going to be a lot harder and it's going to take a lot more time. And to the, I'm guessing I, I, what I think the listener is getting at is, yeah, it's easy to say you can change that, but it's really hard to actually do it. And I totally agree. And it depends on the strength of how far you are to one end of the continuum are or another to actually bring about that kind of change. Mm-hmm. Dr. Andy Scudinga is my guest, a psychology professor. I love to ask professor-esque questions, which uh, I do when <laughs> Andy comes in. All right, Andy, how about jokes that were cracked at us? Maybe mm. at a younger age? Yeah. And they happen to sting for, I don't know, what, a lifetime? Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. How do we process those? 
I would say this. Ask yourself if it was true or not. Okay. For real. You know, if somebody, you know, it depends on what the joke was about. If it's a joke about, you know, you're you're always so, so uptight and A-type about things. And so somebody made, you know, kind of a cruel joke about that. Mm-hmm. Is it is it based in truth? I mean, are you that person? Or was it something that was contextual in the moment and meant to make you feel bad about that one thing? You know, because humor is a funny thing, right? It can be a really sharp knife. And sometimes, I hate to say it this way, but sometimes uh, it's it's hurtful for us to hear jokes like that about ourselves. But it's helpful too because it forces us to say, is that... Is that really what I'm like? Mm. Do I? Is that really me? And if it is, then what do we do about it? If it's something we've hung on to for 22 years, but we've never explored that or done anything about it, we're probably not doing ourselves a service in that area. Mm-hmm. And we're hanging on to something that's old and hurtful. But yeah, I wouldn't call that a healthy thing. Yeah, either. Andy, let's not even call it a joke. Let's just call it a comment. Yeah, comment that was made, and it was a thoughtless off the cuff remark and you didn't take it that way it right. registered into your bones yeah that's tough you take that to the lord yes you do you really do because there's probably a level of healing that you, you can't match or meet on your own and you probably can't do it with a therapist either that that might be something that you just give to god and work through it with his help and nobody else's mm-hmm. all right you liked my boris quote, didn't you? Yeah. I've got one more for you. This another other, Boris Pasternak no, joke? No, it's another, not another or, or, Boris. Quote, not joke. Yeah, I don't. I actually don't know who said this, but I love it, and I discovered mm. it over the weekend, and I want to get your take on it. People don't decide their futures, they decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. Yeah, I've heard that one before yeah. as well. That's a really, that's a great quote. Yeah. I think it's very true. I really do. So how do we best improve our habits? Habits take a long time to develop. They take anywhere from 30 to 260 (laughs) some days. Yeah. Okay. Right? Bad habits are great. They develop really fast. Super fast. Yeah. If you want to have a bad habit, you can make that happen real quick. But good habits that are really helpful and healthy are, they're tough. They're tough to build. And it requires a great deal of discipline and a great deal of practice. And... We've talked about this a couple times. You've got to get on it and stay on it and focus on one habit that you're going to change at a time. Because if you try to change change three habits together, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. You're not going to do it. Science is pretty clear. Psychology has proven pretty clearly that working on one thing at a time is the best. All right. I'm going to let Rosie chime in. She gave me Matthew 15, 13 as a verse, but I think she's going to probably have a little comment to make about it. Oh, um, so Matthew fifteen thirteen is all plants not planted by God shall be uprooted, accord- and I always say according to his son because it says, Jesus says, right? Yeah. And so I always think about that with plants or with um, with habits that are negative or when I'm praying for myself or somebody else. Totally. Uproot this out of me. If it's not of God, I don't want it. And Jesus says he'll get rid of it. But that is, you know, praying that out loud, declaring that. And then knowing that the word does not return back to God void. Yeah. Right? That's so. fantastic. Yeah, bad habits are like, they're, sometimes they're really deeply rooted, you know, and it's not so easy to just be like, hey, God, 
can you pull this weed out of my garden? And he's like, oh, sure, I got it, right? No, most of the time it requires us to do a lot of digging mm-hmm. and shifting of the dirt around there, and we also have to do the pulling. He'll help us. We're gonna we're not going to pull it out ourselves, but we, we need to do the work that is involved with change like that. It doesn't usually happen overnight. That's a miraculous healing when it happens overnight. It, it is. And I think many times... With psychological processes, and I tell my students this all the time, you know, we have a lot of students who want to pray. They pray for deliverance from something, from anxiety, from depression, from, uh, you know, something more serious than that. Something, you know, like bipolar disorder or, you know, any number of different things. They say, God, take this from me. And they want immediate healing. And when they don't get it, they're disappointed or frustrated. And And I tell them, look, it's mental health work. It's called work for a reason. It requires effort and time and, and thinking and prayer and giving that to God. And I really believe that God rewards that kind of work richly when we take time and effort to say, I'm, I'm going to work on this. And God, I need your help so that I can have healing from this issue, whatever this issue is, whether it's an old wound like the comment we we're talking about mm-hmm. or whether it's something fresh like I've been unable to control my anxiety for the last couple months and it's getting worse I think when we ask God to take it from us, we're also asking, help me to remove it too. It's not just just take it from me. We have to say, help me to remove it with your help. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we see some real change. Yeah, I would agree. Dr. Andy Scudinga is my guest. We're going to come back and continue. I got a question for you about your profession when we return. Ooh, yeah, sounds fun. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. ready for dinner, doesn't it? Yeah, I figured Dr. Andy Scuttinga is my well guest. Done. Thank you very much. I yeah. like that intro music. That is good, isn't it? Are I, you allowed I, to say what it is on the radio? Sure. What was that? Um, it is... Stefan? Stefan... That's not Stefan Grappelli. Stefan Grappelli. Oh, no. um, Stefan Schacklinger? Yes, yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Thanks, Stefan. I will uh, text it to you. Please do. I will. I, I was I was in with that one. All right. Now I lost my train of thought. Oh, question that came in from a listener. Oh, yeah. And that is this. Um, what does the Bible say about psychology? Or in other words, where do the two meet? And do any verses come to mind? No. No verses come to mind immediately. And one of the biggest problems that we have with psychology is that it's largely a very secular science, and most of the most famous psychologists in history are um, almost hostile to, to Christianity and faith. Okay. And what I tell my students on day one of all of my intro psych courses is this. Psychology is a fantastic and God-driven science because God owns all of science. Every square inch of it belongs to God. And so there is no fight between 
true science and God because God made science, right? And so there's, there's nothing that escapes Christianity or biblical wisdom. Does the Bible tell us how to fix schizophrenia? No. Does the Bible tell us lots of things about how to raise children? Well, yes. Um, does the Bible say, hey, this, there's going to be a science coming up in the next thousand years called psychology and you should take serious note of it? No, it doesn't say anything like that. Um, and I'm sure there's probably lots of verses. I, not I'm sure. I know there are. There's lots of verses that apply that you can use in a psychological setting, of course. Um, but I think the tie-in is is very real because we're studying human beings, and human beings are created in God's image. And this is an important part of our first day of class is understanding that, look, we are studying to some level, to a limited human level of who God is, because if we are created in the image of God, the more we understand about ourselves, particularly emotions and thought and feelings, the more we understand about who God is. And we understand how incredible his love is when you learn about how our brains are made I know. and how we are constructed. You know, I, I tell my students this, and I would tell any listener this, the greatest, the greatest thing God made is our brain. It's not the ocean or mountains or stars that have, you know, gases flowing around that we can see from thousands of millions of light years away. It's, it's the human brain. I mean, here we have this really unattractive grayish matter that's all crammed together in a round skull on top of our heads. And yet with that brain, we can sense God's presence. Um, we can make sense of all kinds of things in the world. We think, we emote, and we have feelings, and we can make sense of it all, even when it's incredibly confusing. And that's all a gift from God. And, you know, when, when, the, when the psalmist says, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, I knit you together in your mother's womb, it's, it's, it's the brain, I think, that he's talking the most about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, is, it, is it a clear line between the Bible and psychology? Not always. It can be really murky sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I believe that when you study psychology and you study the Bible, you're going to see lots of carryover that says, ah, that now that makes sense to me. Okay. All right, here's another topic I want to move to and let me just read this. False memory refers to cases in which people remember events differently from the way they happened. Yeah. Or in most dramatic case remember events that never happened at all. Yeah. False memories can be very vivid and held with high confidence. Oh yeah. And it can be difficult to convince someone that the memory in question is wrong. <laughs> yeah. How do we get all these false memories? What happens through what do we what happens? Well, our memories degrade over time and the the more we remember something, the more we conjure up that image in our head of of a memory whether it's a bad or a good one. It's it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. The more we remember it, we tend to be a little bit more accurate with the details. Mm-hmm. But over time, even those accurate details, they 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 fade. I mean, that's just naturally what happens. I mean, they, they fade over time. And so the accuracy of our memories isn't, isn't ironclad. Mm-hmm. No matter how strongly we feel about the memory, the, unless you've got video evidence to back you up, you're probably going to get some of the details wrong. I mean, I literally just talked about this in, in a class today about the power of memory. And false memories are very, they're a very real thing. Many of us have false memories from our childhood, from other experiences, um, if you remember kind of in the late eighties and early nineties, there was a huge push for kids who were convicting, um, people of like sexual abuse mm-hmm. 
And um, a researcher named Elizabeth Loftus was concerned with this and did a ton of research and found out that lots of these cases were created by uh, well-meaning investigators and social workers who are investigating these situations and essentially leading children into false memories mm-hmm. about what happened to them. And then wow, they would find scary. out later that they missed um, – what's uh, when you uh, convict somebody um, – Convict them poorly. I can't remember the right <laughs> term. You know, a lot of people were, were convicted of crimes that they never committed because the testimony of these children was greatly manipulated mm-hmm. by by well-meaning people who weren't trying to pin anybody. They're just trying to extract the They're just the trying story. to get the truth. And by leading these kids with the wrong kinds of questioning, they found out that there were tons of kids with false memories about these Interesting. things. Interesting. And so a lot of police organizations have changed entirely the way they interrogate witnesses and ask questions so that they knowing that our memories are not super reliable our memories are not the most reliable mm-hmm. in fact a study one study showed that if i if i show people a crash video of two cars maybe going 35 miles an hour who hit each other at an intersection if you ask people how fast were the cars going when they hit each other they will say a much lower speed than when you say, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? Oh. Because the smash is implying something that's pretty big, right? Mm-hmm. It's a smashing success. They smashed into each other versus they hit each other. Because mm-hmm. hitting could be like five miles an hour, right? So you can lead people's memories down a path just by the language you use. And it's... It's fascinating how this works out. So yeah, if you're if you're like, hey, I've got a great memory and I remember all kinds of mm. things, I would bet my house on this. Don't do that. You're probably wrong. So would a false memory be just a recollection that that seemed seems real in my mind, but is not true? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm believing that I started the washing machine before I left for work. Yeah, only to come home to find out you didn't. Yeah, and then we're like, something must have happened in the washing machine because I know I started that. <laughs> Right, because you you don't want to give up the idea that I'm that I'm right, but, but you it's don't a also, false memory. Yeah, but you also don't want to walk around going, "Am I am I am I losing it here?" Well, I thought right. I started the the washing machine. Yeah, we. I mean, we do this stuff all the time. Okay, we, I mean, people forget are they, things. Are they a, is it a symptom day. of something? Is it is it trauma? Is it pressure? Is it stress? Is it mental health issues? What causes us to do this? We just don't have perfect memories. Okay, honestly, I think yeah. that's the simplest solution to most forget forgotten things is we just don't remember well and you know as we as humans get older our memory degrades we don't have as good of a memory when we're 60 as when we do when we're 20 mm-hmm. um just like sight vision just like everything right you just things gonna go downhill after your early 40s for some for your early 20s for yeah. physical performance right but don't a lot of people measure where they're at based on their memory yeah and they think oh i can't remember where that is or i can't remember that person's name yeah and I, I yeah, I've had that more and more the last two years. Honestly, since COVID, and I don't think it has anything to do with COVID. It's just the timing. I don't. I, it's just a reference point. But I'm finding that it's harder for me to to remember student names and faces because I'm just getting older. And I told my students at the beginning of this school year, I said, "Hey, don't feel bad. You know, I have like 58 people in a classroom." If I don't remember your name in a few weeks, please don't take it personally. I'm trying to get to know all of you, but my memory is not as good as it used to be. And then during the memory section, I talk about that again in my psychology course. We talk a lot about memory, and I help try to help them understand that your your memory's just not 
perfect. So don't don't beat yourself up every time you can't remember something because that's just part of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just we can't remember everything. It's, yeah, it's not it's not natural. Maybe we just place too much importance on a memory, thinking we oh, should have perfect memories. Yeah. Well, we don't, and that's okay. Well, and I think we do because sometimes we hang on to stuff that. You know, that was a great moment in my life. Well, it was it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you're still going back to that for those happy moments, mm-hmm. uh, you maybe need to create some happier moments well, now, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm a nostalgic guy, so oh, I, sure. I like going back and revisiting some sweet memories, right? Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's when you spend every weekend going back and looking at nostalgic memories and you're living in the past, yeah. when you're relying on your memories to keep you happy and sane all the time, that's not a good thing. Because no, I agree. we have to look ahead, too. Yeah. Well, Rosie just gave us the one-minute signal. Do you know what that means, Andy? Yeah, we in, have... In radio business? That I got to say something really snappy and memorable now. That would be nice. That would be nice. What would you like to say that's snappy and memorable? Hey, everybody. Have a great rest of your evening, <laughs> and thanks for listening to the Bill Arnold Show. Like Afternoons that. with Bill Arnold. And his guest, Andy Scudinga. Nice. How'd that, nice. that, that, that actually was a very, um, whatever. Okay. Uh, it was good. <laughs> it was good. This is why I don't have my own radio show. Yeah, but you did good. Thanks. Yeah, and I want to say hi to Andy's mom, who might be listening. She will. Nice. Hi, Mom. Hey, Mom. And Dad. And Dad listening, too? Yeah, they listen to everything together. Oh, sweet. I like that. All right, that's our show for the day. Thank you, Andy, for being here, and thank you for tuning in and listening to my show today. Maybe you're catching it on the podcast later. I'm thrilled that you're doing that as well. You can learn about that at myfaithradio.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.